Hello and shalom, everybody. My name is Julia Jassy, and you are listening to Nice Jewish Girls, brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. This episode is sponsored by John and Rachie Teller. On today's episode, we're going to be speaking with Eve Barlow. Eve is a lot of incredible things. She's a music journalist, she's an activist, she's a Twitter provocateur, and she's an impassioned and vocal Zionist and feminist. She's actually a good friend of mine, and she's been a mentor for a lot of my work in the Jewish world. Though I've known Eve for almost a year now, I wanted to speak to her now on this show. The past month has been pretty insane for all of us, but for Eve more than anybody else. During the recent awful flare-up of fighting in Israel and in Gaza, Eve was doing Eve things, namely defending Israel on Twitter very, very passionately. And the backlash that she received was really unparalleled. She got intense hate and bile speed at her. And it's really affected her emotionally, as you'll hear in this interview. She has gone through a lot. I wanted to ask Eve what it feels like to be so vulnerable online. To be so brazenly opinionated, even when you know you'll be abused for it. I'll be honest. Sometimes I read what she writes and I think, wow, that was bold. It's impossible to see Eve's work and deny that it takes a lot of guts. I'm still learning to find my voice, but Eve never hesitates to be her authentic self. And I want to understand how. I'm so excited for you guys to meet her. Let's do this thing. Eve Barlow is both a music journalist and a well-known Jewish activist, as well as a personal friend. But I want to introduce her with her Twitter bio, which is The Interrupter, journalist, Zionist, Scottish. Eve, thank you so much for coming today. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you, Julia. It's an honor to be here. Amazing. Um, Just to start off, so let's start from the beginning. So you're from Scotland. Um, What was your experience growing up as a Scottish Jew? I feel like you and Ben are like the two Scottish Jews that I really know. So, I mean, we're the only two that exist. We're two, <laughs> we're two halves of one unicorn. Um, JK, Scotland, for uh, in terms of being a Jewish person growing up there, it's a small community, um, very tight-knit community. And it was a really, in many ways, a really wonderful place in which to grow up being Jewish because we had an active community and both of us um, were very participatory in it. And we met because we went to the only Jewish primary school or elementary school, as you as you call it here in Scotland. And we both attended that school from nursery, i.e. kindergarten age onwards. So I think we were maybe four when we met each other, potentially three. Uh, not that I would have any memory of that. It was a really small community. It's kind of fascinating that in the middle of the 20th century, I do believe that Glasgow had the most or one of the most prominent Jewish communities in the whole of the UK. And I imagine that's because it's also a a commercial city with a massive port in it. So I figure that Jews who were fleeing from wherever they came from arrived through the poor in the city and then stayed there and and built lives because it is a a corporate commercial city. By the time I was growing up there, it was a far smaller Jewish community. I think the number of Jews in Glasgow was concentrated around two to three thousand. 
Oh, wow. We were based in a small part of the city, uh, all in the same sort of neighborhood. So it's it wasn't it wasn't a majority situation at all. Um, but it was also one that rooted me in a very strong Jewish identity because I was so able to be actively involved in it. When I was growing yeah. up, there were six synagogues. And by the time I left, when I was 17, I think only two of them remained active. So that kind of tells you as to how much the community has dwindled over the decades. And I, I, I want to talk about that. So one thing that you've spoken about and written about um, is the idea that you left the UK um, because of this, or in part because of this tremendous rise in anti-Semitism that had happened around the time that you were growing up. How did it start? Can you speak to that, your experience and that kind of... Sure. I think that anti-Semitism was something that I was always abundantly aware of. I grew up with this sort of um, mentality drilled into me that the world is anti-Semitic, but I refused to believe it. I didn't want to believe that. I was idealistic for a very long time and have always been a glass half full person. So I I felt like that, you know, and I actually, I've kind of changed my stance on this now. I don't think it is a pessimistic, negative way to look at the world to see that the world is anti-Semitic. I think it's a realistic viewpoint and then we can work from that. It doesn't mean that we can't be optimistic and we can um, consider that we can build security for ourselves in in our lives in the world while being Jewish. Um, but I definitely grew up with that as a sort of a, a thought in the back of my mind. And then it was when I was at university, I mean, even before that, when I was in, when I was in high school, I didn't go to a Jewish high school. When I was in high school, I started to become aware of people having prejudices towards me because I was Jewish. Um, there was one day, I remember one of the popular kids who wasn't very smart was making fun of me because I was a, you know, I was a bookish straight A student and I think I got a hundred on a Latin test or something. And this kid was making fun of me on the bus and called me a kike. So that was the first time I really experienced something that I recall being so overt. Um, but, you know, there were there were so many things that happened. Even when I was my primary school, I previously mentioned, we had a bomb scare at that school, you know, um, be, that targeted the school because it was a Jewish school. Um I I had so many experiences growing up in Glasgow that that I look back on now and clearly recollect as anti-Semitic. But at the time, I think I probably, for one reason or another, didn't want to see it as that that clear cut. But the thing that that has become the most significant reflection at this point in my life is really thinking back on my university experience. And thinking back on the culture that existed in the mid-2000s in the UK that really was actually an extension of a culture that has existed in European academia for decades before I went to university, um, through the 80s and the 90s. But it was this, you know, rampant anti-Zionism, this hatred of Israel and 
a need to attack or put on trial any Jewish society or organization that's represented at the university um, vis-a-vis Israel-Palestine. And I remember during, it was either 2005 or 2006, the Friends of Palestine Society erected a wall in the middle of the high street in Manchester, where I went to school, opposite the student union. And they were demonstrating, how would you like it if a wall was erected in the middle of your you know, in the middle of your university or in the middle of your campus, because that's what's that's what the Israelis are doing to the Palestinians type of thing. And I remember this at the time, me and some other members of the Jewish society, the JSOC, were up in the student union in a meeting room trying to figure out how we were going to combat this or what we were going to do about it in response. And I remember us feeling as a collective really rather scared like physically in danger. There was a lot of heckling outside the door of the meeting room. And it was, it was all of a sudden this rageful identity tribal politic between the Jews on campus and the Palestinians or like advocates for, for Palestine on campus. And that is something I reflect upon more now when I think about what contributed to the poisoning the increased poisoning of the left in UK politics and the emergence of a leader like Jeremy Corbyn, who we know so much more about now. But, mm-hmm. you know, at the time, um, myself and some British Jewish advocates and some of our non-Jewish allies who advocated for us, we were really trying to bring to light the accusations that were being made about what was going on behind the scenes in the Labour Party while Jeremy Corbyn was being was was leader yeah. and in 2014 I left the UK I left as you noted for a number you know for a number of reasons but the straw that really broke the camel's back was the amount of anti-semitism that I was seeing was increasingly raging and not even beneath the surface it was it was becoming more and more overt I was working at a major music publication I was having to have conversations in the office that I would never usually have about you know running opinion pieces in the news section about about free Palestine or whatever from the mouthpiece of of bands, indie bands in the UK who know nothing about the conflict. This was during the height of the 2014 conflict with Gaza. And I, I I was living in East London. There were swastikas cropping up, graffitied swastikas cropping up on buildings. There's a huge supermarket chain in the UK called Tesco's. It was actually founded by a Jewish couple Tesco is actually short for Tessa Cohen, who was the wife of the man who founded Tesco's. And I remember going to my local Tesco's and going into the kosher food aisle and all of the products had been removed and me asking the teller where the food was and it being explained to me that this was part of a boycott against Israel. And I remember immediately going home and just for my own pedantic purposes, researching where this kosher food was actually produced. And it was produced in Kent, outside of London. It wasn't even from Israel. And, you know, if anything is more of a visible indication as to how anti-Zionism is actually anti-Semitism, it's the, it, it's the 
<laughs> the riddance of kosher food products not even made in Israel from from huge supermarket chains. Yeah. So this was all happening at this time, and really, um, I had very close friends in Los Angeles, and they would just be expressing a lot of fear around what was happening to their Jewish brothers and sisters in in the UK and in the rest of Europe. And they would say to me, you know, come here. It's it's safe to be Jewish. Everyone, you know, there are menorahs in the CVS. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it, everyone, everyone is, can be visibly Jewish here and there's no problem, especially in California. And um, yeah, there were a number of, of factors behind my decision to, to leave London at that point, I'd been there for seven years and I'd kind of, I've worked my way up the ladder to a a really, you know, um, noteworthy position in a magazine. And I, I didn't, and I knew that I didn't want to be working in that environment for that much longer in that role. And I wanted to move laterally to something else. And so all of those things combined made sense, but the, the final, the final catalyst for my move was this, just this bad taste in my mouth that I couldn't get rid of that perhaps the UK wasn't a safe place to be Jewish anymore. And especially a Jewish person like me who has always been liberally minded and felt as though I was being pushed out of the circles that I had existed in for so many years. And of course, in 2015, Jeremy Corbyn then became leader of the Labour Party. Yeah. So my predictions were on point. Yeah, it's it's so interesting to hear you talk about this and particularly the story that you told about your friends in LA. So I'm I'm from Long Island and I grew up in a place where being Jewish of course was like a minority, but it wasn't that minor. I mean, everyone's kind of Jewish in Long Island. So it was a part of the culture. People speak Yiddish the same way they speak any other slang. Like there are words that people say that are just built into your everyday vernacular as a Long Island person that are like from Yiddish or from different like kind of Jewish cultural pieces. Um, and to see a lot of the spread of anti-Semitism in the past few years has been really unexpected for me because it never was something I thought about until I came to college, except for the rare occasion that something anti-Semitic would happen growing up, which happened, but it wasn't like a huge part of my life. Um, but it seems for you and the experience that you just told us about um, was that student activism seems pretty ingrained in in UK EU culture. So you guys have um, like the Jewish Student Union. Kind of how we operate is we have on our campuses Hillel and Chabad, and those are places run by a rabbi and students will, will have leadership roles in those spaces. But it seems like the Jewish Student Union is a way for a collective voice to, to happen. So do you think that that space on campus contributed to you finding your voice as an activist or it just seems like you've been involved with this since day one. I should further explain what I meant. I, we don't have a separate student union for Jewish people. We have a student union that houses all the different societies. So there there was a Jewish society as, as part of the student union groups. And we also had a Hillel on campus and a similar kind of structure to what you're talking about. The meeting that took place in the student union was in an available meeting room that any organization or society can, can, can take up. So, so we didn't have a a separate building for Jewish, for Jewish organizations other than a, a Hillel Chabad. And I can't remember 
it's been so long that I can't even remember what that was or looked like at Manchester. I would actually say that in terms of my university life, I wasn't as active. I, I wasn't, I wouldn't describe myself as an activist. I would describe myself as someone who picked a school because, um, because I was very academically driven, but I balanced my choice of which institution to go to with which institution for academic purposes with which institution had a really healthy Jewish life on campus because I wanted you know, I'd never, I hadn't left home before the age of 17 and I'd always had a very strong Jewish identity. And, you know, I went to synagogue every Saturday for Shabbat and I was very active in my local, um, Jewish organizations. I was, I went to B'nai Akiva. I was a chairperson of the Federation of Zionist Youth or FZY, uh, the local chapter in Glasgow. And I would go on Jewish camps and that kind of thing. So I was, I really wanted to find a university where I could continue socializing with Jewish people, but it wasn't really about um, Jewish activism or advocacy for me at all. In fact, I think I kind of kept that side of my life quite quiet because I went to read law at, at undergrad and my friends in my legal program and my law degree I barely, I don't think any of them were Jewish. I I barely had any Jewish friends that I studied law with. And those were my, you know, I, I changed my living arrangements throughout my every year of my university life. And I always lived, apart from my first year when I was in halls of residence, I always lived with other Jewish people because I wanted to be in a kosher environment. But Outside of my living arrangements, all of my social life was essentially with non-Jewish people. So I kind of, I I wasn't very vocal about my opinions or my Jewish identity. It was more of a, you know, I was more of the, the non, my non-Jewish friends, token Jewish friend. And they would ask me questions about, you know, what's Pesach or like, what, what's this Purim thing about? Or, you know, oh, look, it's really, it's, it's a Wednesday. That means that ask the rabbi person is standing on the steps of the student union. <laughs> what should we ask him this week? Sort of thing. Yeah. And, you know, on reflection now, I actually think of that and it makes me quite sad because I realized that I was really, you know, and these people are no longer in my life. And I, I realized that I was quite heavily tokenized by my non-Jewish friends when I was, when I was at university. Um, but at the time I certainly wasn't the vocal Jew that I am now and not because I wasn't proud, but because I think I was still of the mindset that, you know, you, when you leave your, if you want to assimilate into society, when you leave your house in the morning, there are elements of your identity that you always carry in your heart, but you don't need to necessarily, you know, sing and dance about them all day long. So that was where I was at at that point in my life. I think that's something that I can relate to kind of an, uh, on the opposite way, whereas growing up in a place where there were lots of Jewish people, I never felt the need to like connect to it when I left my house. It was kind of a personal at home thing. And then as I got older and I became like the only Jew in certain spaces, I really clung to it more 
because it became something that I wanted to preserve. And that's something that I'm really proud of. Um, and so I can understand that switch as well. And I want to talk for a moment before you even got into this activist space um, about your career as a music journalist. Um, so I, I'm curious because journalism is a, a tricky field or historically has been a tricky field for Jews and a tricky field for women. And you're a Jewish woman. So you really, you really exist at the intersection here of a lot of challenges in the field. What was your experience like? Yeah, it was challenging. <laughs> and not necessarily because of my Jewishness at first. It was it was mainly because of the fact that I was a woman. And I remember I remember being I mean, my first real office job that took me places was at a magazine called Q in London, in the heart mm-hmm. of Soho, the building was at the time. And I was there first off as an intern and an intern that essentially wouldn't let anyone uh, let me leave. It's basically, um, I, I created a purpose for myself all the time. I was finding other reasons as to why I should stay an extra day, an extra week, an extra month or what have you. And I, yeah. I talked myself into staying and made a use for myself. And I wound up being hired to do freelance sub-editing work. And sub-editing is when you're responsible for all of the furniture on a page. So you're responsible for making sure that the picture is in the right place and that it has a caption on it and that the headers are correct and the stand first or the the cell, that kind of emboldened text underneath the header that explains what the article is about, that you you write that and you uh, grammatically check and spell check and fact check all the copy on the page and you have a relationship with the writer. So it's a it's a very good job for someone who has yet to find their writing voice or, you know, has yet to accept that they haven't found their writing voice <laughs> and someone who really wants to learn about magazine craft on the go, on the shop floor. So I was doing that, but the office I was doing in, I was the I was the only woman apart from the editor's assistant, but that's very much a you know, it's it's unsurprising that it's such a subservient job would be done traditionally by women. Yeah. Apart from the editor's assistant, I was the only woman on the shop floor and I was the youngest person there by a long shot. That's really incredible. Wow. That must be a difficult environment to work in. It was challenging. And in retrospect, I and even at the time, I saw all of the people that I worked with as kind of like my big band of brothers. But by the same stretch, it was this kind of, um, it was a very testing environment and I was constantly feeling like I had to prove myself. And there was always a question in my head where I would look around me and I would consider the readership and the people that we were covering and the way in which we would cover them. Or I would, I would watch Almost Famous or I would read about the, you know, the notorious music journalists of Rolling Stone and Cream Magazine in the 70s, the 60s and 70s or at the NME where I went on to work in the 80s and 90s. And I would think to myself, is this a man's job? Am I trying to get into a man's industry? Because they're really... I really didn't have a lot of visible examples of women who did this. And I do remember there being a kind of like atmosphere around me in the office where, you know, the guys would all peel off at some point. 
during the middle of the week and then on a Friday afternoon to the pub. And sometimes I would go with them, but there would be this atmosphere of, well, you know, like we can't make jokes in front of Eve because she's a girl. There was an elephant in the room because I was a woman. Um, And I, I definitely felt as though I had to work 10 times harder to be, to do just the same thing as everyone else because, and and that there was no room for me to make an error because anytime I made an error, there would be some kind of like um, microaggression about the fact that I was female, which had nothing to do with me making a mistake. It would probably to do with the instruction, the instruction being bad or that, or any other reason as to why or just being a, a human because yeah we make exactly. mistakes yeah exactly did you have any female mentors in the field or were you kind of paving the way for yourself I didn't really know I there were a couple of people that wrote for Q at that time who were females and I don't know if I particularly looked up to them I think I actually I found I found myself internally being quite critical of them because what I saw were women that had kind of swallowed what we called in the nineties, Ladette culture. So lads, laddie, like boyish culture, Mm. um, feminine, like feminized, if you like. So very masculine aping behavior in order to, you know, if you're, if you're going to work in a man's industry, then you have to be like a man. You have to speak like a man. You have to think like a man. You can't own your femininity. And I Mm. think that there are some older feminists who still kind of participate in that, know that, that way of thinking that, you know, um, you have to function in a masculine way in order to get ahead, which is totally not true. So while there were females, there were one or two women that I recognized were women and were doing what I did. They weren't using their voice in a way that I would have done. And I was disappointed that they weren't doing more to open the doors for women to just use their own voices without having to put on some kind of pretentious laddie style just to make men feel comfortable. That didn't seem very authentic to me or helpful at all. Yeah, that reminds me a lot of the critique of like third wave girl boss, quote unquote, feminism, where it's Mm. women kind of buying into the system that men have typically used to be, you know, sexist and hierarchical but women using it to their advantage and not actually helping the situation for all women but just kind of helping themselves and so yeah. I think that's kind of what you're if it's on, if I'm getting it correct it's kind of what you're touching on here absolutely it's exactly yeah. that it's exactly that yeah it's interesting I think that like we're becoming really conscious of it it's an interesting kind of time right now where we're becoming conscious of even the ways that feminism has failed sometimes other women um and kind of redefining that to make it more inclusive for all identities i think is important um and you're definitely in the in in the field of doing that work so i want to switch for a moment over to talk a bit about your jewish activist work that's how i got to know you that's how i think a lot of our listeners probably know you um so you have been involved with Jewish activism for as long as I've been aware of Jewish activism. What made you decide to go into this space? What kind of got you involved in it in the first place? It really wasn't a choice. It was kind of like a, it was a tumble of dominoes, you know, slowly but surely. I would find myself 
dipping a toe into, you know, getting really upset. And part of my music journalism and just my use of my platforms in general since I graduated university was that I would always kind of blog about things that were on my mind. And I've never, I've always shared my opinions. Most of them have been about pop culture, but they've been about pop culture fused with identity politics, intersectionality, all of these, all of these conversations that we're always having online and in person with each other. And I would always feel this pull to, you know, if something was really gnawing at me, the best way for me to get it out is on page and then to share it and to have people either hate me for it or love me for it or both at the same time. And that's, I, I've always had a problem keeping my mouth shut, even when I know I probably should. And so what was happening with the the Jewish identity drive was that I found myself inch by inch, I would keep having these moments where I would dip my toe in. And the first time that happened was when, um, when I first decided to leave London and I came to America about six months in someone at Grazia magazine hit me up and I can't remember if it was in reaction to something I tweeted or something somebody had said behind the scenes about me, but you know, Eve, I'm aware that you're Jewish and you've been affected by anti-Semitism, and there's a lot of public conversation about this right now. And this was, you know, after the conflict in Gaza, this was early 2015 and can you write something for us? And I did. And I wrote this piece about why I decided to leave the UK. Um, And the reaction to it was really emotional, both from Jewish people who were afraid, from Jewish people who I guess are the equivalent of the anti-Zionist, you know, been Jews in America right now who believe that, they have to silence those Jews in order to remain successfully, in quotes, assimilated. Um, They reacted badly. And then the other people who reacted in shock were my non-Jewish peers who had no idea that I was experiencing any of this. And some of them gaslit me and some of them were just very sympathetic and concerned. That was the first time I said anything and I saw the impact of my voice in that field when that piece ran because the reaction was enormous and it was diverse and it kind of scared me and I I took a step back and, you know, for, for many reasons, personal reasons too, I just moved to another country, I'd walked out of my job, I had to reestablish myself and I really charged fully ahead into becoming a freelance writer. And my focus was on being a great one of, you know, one of my generation's great pop culture writers and opinion holders and profilers. I wanted to become a name profiler of people. I wanted to get, I wanted my Q and A's and my interviews to be some of the most talked about interviews of you know, our generation. And that was where my focus was. That's what I wanted to do with myself. And I knew I was perfectly placed to do that in LA, but things just kept resurfacing in my gut and they kept curdling round and round. And, you know, that internal alarm clock that some of us have, or a lot of us have actually, but only some of us choose to really react to, and then use our voices to speak on, 
It just kept going off over and over again. And all of these incremental things would happen. And one of the most significant moments for me was, I think it was 2017's Glastonbury Festival. I think it was 2017. Um, At that festival, I used to know Katy Perry and her team. And I was side of stage because Katy Perry was about to come out and play her set on the pyramid stage at one, I think it was the Saturday sunset slot. But before Katy Perry came out, um, there was a run the jewels set and sandwiched between run the jewels and Katy Perry was Jeremy Corbyn who run the jewels introduced. And Jeremy Corbyn was billed to come on stage and talk to the masses. And here I am standing side of stage on the pyramid stage at Glastonbury, which is one of the biggest stages in the world. And it accommodates over 200,000 wow, people. That's a lot of people. <laughs> I'm standing by the stairwell and he comes up and walks past me and he goes on the stage and he delivers his speech about, you know, um, the party for, for the better of society and for, for good people and um, for the many, not the few, or what we came to term for the many, not the Jew. Mm-hmm. And he gave this speech. The whole, the whole area had been completely jam-packed and not for Katy Perry, for Jeremy Corbyn. And he received this incredible applause And then he came off stage and he walked past me again and he walked down the stairs. And I remember feeling ill. You know, I I remember understanding what the impact of this meant and being in this really juxtaposed position within myself where my family, my community, my music people, the festival that I called home that I'd been to 10 times previous, I'd had all of these formative experiences at, my whole industry, all of my peers, all of the bands that I'd written about for years, they were all enraptured by this moment. And I was trying to take that in while at the same time knowing that this was a deeply dark moment to be Jewish standing on that stage. And that was really something changed in me then because I realized that I have this unique position that I don't think I have anymore. I think I've, I've lost it because we've, because the left are lost. But at that moment for a couple of years, I had a unique position where I, I did have a captive audience that was not hearing the Jewish perspective or our perspective at all. And at the time I had quit social media, I decided it was just a place for ego baiting. And, you know, I was writing for some of the biggest publications in the world. And what did I need to tweet out the article for when the publications I was writing for had millions of followers? I, I, I just thought, I don't need this noise in my life. I want to wake up in the morning and not have the first thing I do be looking at my phone to check Twitter and Instagram. This this stuff doesn't need to rule my life. And I remember after that summer, I made a conscious decision and I said, okay, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna restart my Twitter, but I'm only doing it to fight Corbynism. And that's gonna be my mission because I already know I have all of these follows. Most of them are in the social justice world or in the the literary world and in the music world. And I'm going to speak to these people about the the perspective of a Jewish person at this moment, a British Jewish person. And I would write articles on Medium that I would share. And that was when I joined forces with a group of very prominent voices in the UK British Jews and a couple of non-Jews. I mean, it was really just a very small group of people. And, you know, without sounding like a Zionist cabal, we <laughs> we operated a sidebar of of basically lifting each other's voices up and maintaining strength and courage via each other. And and we and you know we got our hands dirty and we weren't afraid to speak out and it was a lot easier i'm not going to say it was easy but it was easier knowing that i had other people in my corner who reminded me that i was a sane person and that all i was doing was speaking the truth yeah it was really at that point that i realized we can't wait for the jewish establishment to react to say something we have to do this ourselves it doesn't matter that we're on the fringes it doesn't matter that we don't really have anything else in common. What matters is that we do have voices and we're unafraid to use them. And I'm reminded of something that Barry Weiss actually said in her talk with AJC last night. And I shared a bit of it on my Instagram this morning. She was talking about how you don't need to be a CEO of a company or, you know, some massive, massively successful human being in order to be a leader at this point in time, because it's the people who have come out of nowhere, seemingly, who have always um, been important figureheads or contributors to the survival and the perseverance of, of our people. And that really resonated with me enormously because I would never have predicted that, you know, an increased need to tweet and write and be vocal about these things on various platforms would have created a scenario three, four years down the line where, you know, my life is now far more consumed with Jewish activism than it is with journalism or pop culture journalism, at least. I would never have predicted that. I don't know if I would have desired that, but that's but that's where we are. And I couldn't be prouder to take however many hits I have to take every day online to fight for the survival of our people. I mean, you know, what is it at the end of the day being trolled on the internet versus um contributing to one of the most magnificent stories of peoplehood that this planet has ever seen our peoplehood. It's incredible what we have survived and how old our heritage is. And yeah, I'm I'm proud to be part of this community and to continue advocating for us. I think one thing that you touched upon just now, it's one thing that I think about a lot, which is this tremendous intersection between anti-Semitism um, and sexism. And not even just that, I think anti-Semitism and any other intersecting marginalized identity but for a lot of us that and for a lot of our listeners that's anti-semitism and sexism 
Um, something I've definitely experienced, something you've def- definitely experienced as well. Why do you think this happens? Why do you think this becomes an, an easy quote unquote target? Why do you think that Jewish women in particular are subject to the most pernicious anti-Semitism that we we see? And do you think that there is a reason or do you think that this is just a societal flaw that we have to work co- consciously toward fixing? Oh, there's definitely a reason for it. It's not a coincidence. And we do yeah. we do receive the most pernicious, the most vile abuse on the internet that I have seen of any any group of our community. Um, there are two things that I think I should mention. One is, is that there's a reason why women step up to the plate by and large more and that they do it more garrulously with with less fear and more directness. And it's because if you're a woman like we are who are already in a position of advocacy, you know, we've had to blow the doors off and off the hinges and, and we've had to be unapologetic about fighting for our rights or fighting for respect or recognition or you know, whatever, whatever it is, fighting for a day without any abuse. Um, there is a reason why we've already kind of had, a, a, I guess, a, a dress rehearsal when it comes to this. We are prepared to pick up this fight and to really, and to really go for it and not hide our identities and not hide our faces. And because we've, because we do, we're accustomed to having these battles. And I think a lot of us are also coming from progressive environments, progressive backgrounds, at least whether we identify with progressive circles anymore or not, that, that is part of our heritage as feminists. And I think that that has also um gifted us with a, a a robustness and a thicker skin when it comes to and an understanding of the hate that we are going to face when we speak the truth and the other thing that i want to talk about is so that, that that's why we're more prone to do it in terms of the reasoning behind why we receive the most vicious hate it's because it's because sexism is pretty much the only other form of hatred that's as old as anti-Semitism. So if a bunch of Jewish women are standing up online and interrupting the conversation and saying, no, I will not be a polite Jewish woman, you're saying you won't be a polite Jew and you're saying you won't be a polite woman. And both of those things are going to, are going to piss off a huge Venn diagram of human beings. And you know the the way that sexism operates unfortunately it's all about converting sex into power i mean that's what it's that is what it's about and anti-semitism is about taking power away perceived power away from jews so in order to dominate over a jewish woman you have to take much more of that perceived power away and there are Obviously, um, attacks specific to women that disempower us and that um, that defile us, and that is, I think, I think that offers a logical explanation as to why we see the absolute, you know, the, the absolute rotten level of misogyny 
that targets us every day on the internet and and it feels so much more sinister than the stuff that I see being thrown at male Jewish advocates or at least heterosexual male Jewish advocates that the the gay Jewish men, male heroes among us, do get their fair share of homophobia also. And for similar for similar reasons to what I've said about the history of misogyny. Absolutely. And I think that that intersection is something that we're becoming more and more aware of. And hopefully with calling that out, there will be a shift, but that comes with a lot of work. Um, the last question that I want to touch upon with you Um, And what I want people to get away from this podcast is access to female mentors, access, like if there there are such incredible women in in the Jewish space and in other spaces that are Jewish and are paving the way for the next generation. And I want people listening to be able to have advice and to have mentorship from these women. Um, and you're one of those women. So if you were speaking right now to a younger sister, a younger sibling, um, a younger person listening to this podcast, what advice would you want to give to them navigating the world as a Jewish woman? I think I would tell them to swat up. <laughs> um, as unfair as it is to have to consume yourself with reading about subject matter that you might feel a bit disconnected from or you might feel is a bit dry. I wish I had begun my journey of learning about how to advocate for our people when I was younger. I I'm you know, I have it all down pat now, but it it was a lot of awkward moments of feeling the worst mo- the worst feeling in the world is being hamstrung by your own lack of speech. And not and knowing in my gut that what people were saying to me was wrong or erroneous or a bunch of propaganda and, and lies, the 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 thing that brought me a lot of shame in those moments was that I didn't have the tools in which to counteract what I was being accused of or what my people were being accused of. So if I was to give any advice to younger sisters in this space, it's really start your research, start reading, finding the voices that you do find palatable and that you connect with. You know, it might be a Noah Tishby, it might be a Barry Weiss, it might be someone, you know, more academic, it might be a Simon Sharma or, you know, a Simon Sabag Montefiore, like someone who's more academic and rooted as a historian. Find your voice that you that you feel uh, a kinship with or a trust with and and really start to listen to what they're saying, even if you're not feeling uh, capable in yourself yet of using your own voice and you need time to come to terms, not with the burden of of Jewish identity, but with the, um, just with the magnitude of it, you know, and the, it's a learning process and it shouldn't be rushed and, and it is we do we do carry a huge history with us and it shouldn't feel like weight on your shoulders it should feel like a song in your heart and you know it and it might take time for you to come to that place and don't worry about it taking time but don't let yourself be molded by non-jewish ideas in order to fit into non-Jewish society. You should be allowed 
to exist in non-Jewish spaces and non-Jewish worlds as a proud member of the tribe. And you should never have to compromise or compensate your story, your peoplehood, your family heritage, your nationhood, um, in order to make other people feel comfortable. Yeah, that's wonderful advice. And Eve, thank you so much for taking the time to sit with us today and to talk with us and to teach us so much. It's been such an honor to have you. Thank you, Julia. It's been an honor to be here. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know about you guys, but for me, that was the most intense episode of Nice Jewish Girls yet. If I'm being honest, it was actually really hard to record. Eve is my friend, and knowing all that we've been through the past few months, all that she's been through the past few months, All our community's been through the past few months, it's really hard. It's hard to see your friends in pain. And not just to see it, but also not know how to talk about it or how to help. The reality is that this is reality right now. Our community is hurting. And Eve's story is a very extreme example of that. I think the Katy Perry story will really stick with me more than anything else. This was years ago before a lot of us reckoned with the discomfort we feel now. It's almost like she had this instinct telling her, I'm not safe here. And sadly, that voice to her felt enduring. And it's almost like she hasn't felt safe since then. Eve has had this amazing, kick-ass career. And she was somewhat prominent for her fearless and proud Zionism, proud feminism. Yeah, she's always gotten hate. I think in some ways, she even thrived on that. It motivated her to be this voice for change. But these past few months have been pretty ground-shattering. Eve Barlow has become a household name, a trending topic on Twitter, and the subject of many a published article. There is so much hate. Her life and career as she knew it is restructuring, and that's really scary. But through the anger and through the fear, I heard something really important. Eve's bravery. Eve is fearless. If she believes something and believes it strongly, it's her full self, and she won't back down. She won't shy away from it. She'll fight for it. Eve is so much more than a nice Jewish girl. She is a strong, powerful woman. It's not even that she's unafraid. It's that she won't allow that fear to get in the way of what she believes is right. And this, my friends, is where we'll leave you for today's episode of Nice Jewish Girls hopefully a bit smarter and a bit more inspired. I would love, love, love to hear your feedback and suggestions for other nice Jewish girls to host on this pod. Email us at podcasts at jewishunpacked.com and join us next week when we'll be speaking with Maytal Schoenberg, a high-powered businesswoman in the financial tech world with a really awesome and empowering story. Nice Jewish Girls is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Rifki Stern is our producer, and I am your host, Julia Jassy. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked related, and subscribe to our other podcasts. I want to specifically recommend Unpacking Israeli History, where every episode, my colleague Noam does a deep dive into a different event in Israeli history. I love it because it's this nuanced and honest portrayal of stories about a really messy and really amazing place. Check it out and let me know what you think. And follow Unpacked at all of the social media places like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. 
just look for at Jewish Unpacked. Talk to you later, ladies.